Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. School of Humans. Try to picture this. A small chapel in an English market town, October 1766. Merchants, tradesmen, shopkeepers, farmers. They park their wagons, tie up their horses, and go in to see what all the commotion is about. The chapel is in Ingateston, a common stop on the Essex Great Road, which travelers have taken since Roman times. Come in. Please, come in. Nobles and ignobles alike enter. All eyes are on the fiery reverend. This sickness is not unto death. This sickness is not unto death. His name is Robert Holton. He's not preaching on the word of God, at least not directly. He's evangelizing about a new medical curiosity. This sickness, as caused by inoculation, is not unto death. Some in the audience believe the product Reverend Holton is selling will invite hell to their village. But he ignores the skeptics and rolls on. This sickness, as caused by inoculation, is not unto death, is not worthy of divine vengeance or punishment, because it violates no command of God and is not included under any sin that he has forbidden. The practice of inoculation is justifiable. This sickness as caused by inoculation is not unto death. Reverend Holton's conviction comes with a cost. He's getting paid to preach by the founders of a fast-growing family business a business that began a few decades earlier with the near death of a promising young man. The young man's name is Robert Sutton Jr. 23 years old and finished with his apprenticeship, ready to join his father, Robert Sutton Sr. Country surgeons and apothecaries, setters of broken bones, dressers of wounds, letters of blood, prescribers of medicines, 
Their patients are lords, farmers, millers, herders, whoever can pay. By this time, Robert Jr. has learned how to heal ills, to remove piles and drain abscesses, set bones, and maybe even to amputate limbs. But before he can join his father's practice, Robert Jr. has to be inoculated against smallpox. Inoculation means having someone purposefully cut open your skin and rub a scab or pus from an infected smallpox patient on the exposed wound. In other words, it means giving you smallpox, making you sick on purpose. Smallpox kills roughly one out of every three people it infects at the time, and you're paying someone to give it to you. Smallpox inoculation is a sort of ad hoc predecessor to vaccination. In a roundabout way, it's the beginning of one of humankind's greatest achievements. The ability to protect from disease. But it's a young procedure. There are no clinical studies and trials, no quality controls in production, no regulatory approvals or any other modern safety checks. By the time Robert Jr. finishes his apprenticeship, inoculation has been performed in England and the American colonies for at least 30 years, and in Turkey, India, and China for many decades more. But in the mid-1700s, inoculation is still a serious risk for each individual patient. And for Robert Sutton Jr., the soon-to-be country surgeon, it's not going to go well. Over the past 50 years, we've seen many new diseases emerge. Ebola, HIV, swine flu, Zika, to name just a few. But there haven't been any truly planet-wide pandemics until now. Now a virus first seen in China can be in Washington in a matter of days. And driven by this pandemic, one completely unprecedented in our lifetime, a virus that has killed our neighbors, our friends, our families, we have been witnesses to a massive international effort to create vaccines and get jabs in arms. On this episode of Long Shot, we're going to speak to a human guinea pig, one of the first people on Earth to get a COVID-19 vaccine. And we'll hear more about the predecessors to today's vaccine makers, the first big inoculation entrepreneurs who made a killing preventing killing 250 years ago. We know the ruin the pandemic has brought to lives, relationships, and economies on a global scale. Vaccines have instituted a real-time revival, for me and for millions. I want to know what went into these vaccines, not just the physical ingredients, but the historical ingredients. So I'm tracing the story of vaccines to their very beginning and bringing it back to today. From My Heart Radio and School of Humans, I'm Sean Revive, and this is Long Shot, the 250-year journey to the COVID-19 vaccines. I can't handle needles at all. So when I have to get, you know, just a tiny bit of blood taken for like, you know, a yearly physical or something, I am the person who, you know, has to start working on my breathing and I wind up having to put my head between my knees, then I have to lay down. It's 2021, so we're speaking over Zoom. So of course it kind of sucks. I'm sorry, can you give me just one more minute? I'm sorry, my printer is just acting a little funny. No problem. Um, Really nice to meet you. Uh, can you can you say your name again? Yeah, it's Nicola Pascarelli. Exactly a year earlier, Nicola is led into a windowless room with cream walls at the Hope Clinic at Emory University in Atlanta. She sits on an exam table covered in that 
paper that crinkles with any movement. By this time, Nicola's nurse already knows how nervous she is. I get this fear of needles from my dad. He once went to a um, safety class for his work, and there was like some, I think it was, you know, the importance of wearing safety goggles video, and he wound up feeling lightheaded after watching the video, so he went off to the bathroom to like compose himself and wound up passing out, hitting his head on the toilet, and they found him in a pool of blood. <laughs> so that that is, you know, my family line that I come from. Next to the table is a wheeled cart that holds one of those rubber tubes that they tie around your arm to help find a vein. And 18 glass vials, ready to be filled with Nicola's blood. And I just kept counting and being like, 18, hold on, count again, it can't be 18, that's way too many. Like, I don't have 18 vials of blood in me. That's what really, like, that made me woozy. Just every time I looked over at the table, I was like, oh gosh. She's about to be one of the first people in the world to get the Moderna vaccine. Though it's believed the formula is safe, it's still a risky move for Nicola. This type of vaccine is made with a strand of messenger ribonucleic acid, or mRNA, surrounded by a fatty lipid nanoparticle bubble. No vaccine of this kind has ever been approved by the FDA. Ever. It's brand spanking new, and it's about to be injected into her body. Throughout the history of vaccines, going back centuries, there have been test subjects, guinea pigs, the first people to get the first shots. Not all of them have been willing participants like Nicola, who knows exactly what she is getting into. Nicola's been chosen because she's young and has a clean medical history without any worrisome conditions. She is, as her nurse tells me, the healthiest of the healthy. She's passed a detailed physical and filled out questionnaires about her health, medications, and lifestyle. She's had her temperature and blood pressure checked over and over again. She's been assured she can drop out of the trial at any time. Despite her needle phobia and an all but genetically inherited fear of seeing her own blood, she's volunteered for this. You've already started this. I'm going to just ask you straight up, what was your motivation for joining the trial? Uh, initially, just fear um, and helplessness. Like, I felt like I needed to to do something. Um, I felt very small, and all of a sudden, you know, just kind of, you know, I, I felt... This is March 2020, a couple weeks after the entire country has shut down practically overnight. Tom Hanks has announced he has COVID. The NBA has canceled all games indefinitely after a member of the Utah Jazz tested positive. Soon after that, schools are shutting down. Offices are closing. PPE is suddenly hard to find. Nobody knows how long this is going to last. Things have just gotten really real in the U.S. for everyone, including Nicola. I, you know, rushed to the grocery store like every single other person. And, you know, the meat sections were empty. And that just kind of, that was a little eerie to see. I've never been in a situation going to a grocery store that's always, you know, completely stocked to realize, wow, you know, I can't even buy ground beef. I can't buy even cuts of beef that I don't want. There's nothing here. Uh, you know, that was, that was when it really started to sink in. But at that point, I still thought, this is just two weeks. You know, we're being crazy for two weeks and then it's going to be over and everything's going to be fine. 
and all of a sudden I just felt like everything was closed off and I didn't like that feeling. And so it's like, what can I do to get everything to return back to normal as soon as possible? What can I do? What can I do to make things better? Because I felt just so hopeless. Nicola hears about the phase one trial on Facebook from a friend who works at Emory and signs up. The first phase of a clinical drug trial is when the drug, in this case a vaccine, is first given to humans, generally after lab studies and testing in animals. Nicola will be one of the first 45 or so people in the world to get a COVID vaccine. It's kind of shocking to think that while most of us in the U.S. are just starting to feel the impacts of coronavirus on our lives, not only has a vaccine already been created, but a clinical trial is already underway. This is eight months before the FDA will approve any vaccine for the general public. At this time, many experts are still wondering if it's even possible to get an effective vaccine produced in a year's time, much less three months. For the phase one trial, the researchers at Emory are mostly interested in dosage and safety. The vaccine has already been tested in mice, but this is the first time they're testing it in people. They want to know the amount to give an adult so that it elicits a strong antibody response without causing overly harsh side effects. Nicola is one of the participants slated to get the highest dosage, 250 micrograms of vaccine. That's only 250 millionths of a gram, but it's 10 times higher than the lowest dosage group. It's a lot of vaccine. I remember the day that I went in for the vaccine. At that point, I was all excited. I put on makeup and I had, you know, mascara and stuff on and I had my face mask on. And in the time that I had to sit there and wait for the vaccine to be ready, because they have to um, defrost it and then, you know, mix it all up and get it all prepared. I got so progressively more nervous about the needle itself that I was sweating so badly that my mascara had gone all the way down my face. My mask was all black on top. My hair got frizzy. That was, I remember just being so distinctly worried about, I have volunteered for this trial. And what if they give me the vaccine and I pass out? Like they're gonna kick me out of this study. (laughs) I think maybe I once had this like momentary, you know, okay, I'm in phase one. Like I am one of 15 people getting the highest dosage that no one else in this country, in this world has ever gotten. And I think for a moment I thought, oh God, am I crazy? Like, could I die? And then I was like, no, it's fine. Modern medicine is great. Like, you know, I think I had that one moment and then I didn't let myself. I just remember thinking, do not pass out. Do not pass out. The Moderna phase one trial is a big deal. The first humans are getting shots of a vaccine meant to protect them against the novel coronavirus. Though by this point, there are more than 100 coronavirus vaccines in the works. Moderna's is the furthest along. Even with billions of dollars at stake in the race for a vaccine, it seems like a minor miracle to already be jabbing it in humans. Historically, vaccine development has taken years, if not decades, to get to phase one. And before clinical trials were even practiced in any real scientific sense, Inoculation was more about improvisation. It was more art than science. That is, until the Sutton family came along. 
Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's 1754 in Suffolk, England, and a disease called smallpox is a recurring terror in the lives of the English and people around the world. It's been that way as long as anyone can remember. A hundred miles away in London, just about everyone gets smallpox at some point in their lives. A lot of people die, succumbing to the fever, delirium, and hemorrhaging. It's an ugly and torturous disease. The more pox you get, the worse off you are. 500 is considered a lucky break. Sometimes they number in the thousands, completely consuming the skin. 
Swelling can be so severe that patients can't see or swallow. An 18th century writer describes smallpox patients as creatures flayed. Still, most people who get smallpox live. Though forever scarred, they're also protected for the rest of their lives. A bit like lightning in one sense, smallpox does not strike the same person twice. Wealthy families seeking caretakers for their children examine the skin of potential employees. It's too risky to hire someone who's never had the pox. In a way, it's reverse discrimination. Show your scars, get the job. For hundreds of years, smallpox kills and kills and kills in England. When Elizabeth I dies in 1603, the Stuarts take over the royal family. Over 60 years' time, they lose three potential rulers to the pox. In 1694, Queen Mary II dies of smallpox. The future of the empire is altered over and over by the disease. Smallpox does not care how much gold you have. It is a part of life for all, rich and poor, urban and rural. Every once in a while, a smallpox plague comes to town. It's the way it is. But around the time that Robert Sutton Sr. is 10 years old, inoculation comes to England. And by the time his own son, Robert Jr., is ready to be a country surgeon himself, inoculation is a somewhat normal, if still hotly debated, totally unregulated and, frankly, wild practice. Inoculators travel around making incisions in people's arms and rubbing in live smallpox virus. Pus, really. Collected from the pox of infected patients. The idea is that if you infect a person with a small amount of smallpox on purpose, they will get a little sick, not very sick, not die, not end up covered in hideous pustules that scar them for life. They will not only recover, but be protected from further smallpox bouts and live unafraid of the disease. What's craziest of all is it usually works. To protect yourself from a lot of virus, give yourself a little of it. That's inoculation. Robert Jr. knows that he can't be a country surgeon without being protected from smallpox. He'll eventually come into contact with an infected patient. But inoculation is not the Sutton's business, so they hire a neighbor, an inoculator. Robert Jr.'s arm is cut open and a bit of smallpox matter rubbed into it. But the procedure goes wrong. Maybe the cut gets infected. Maybe the inoculator infects him with too much virus, giving Robert Jr. full-blown smallpox. Robert Jr. nearly dies. His father is devastated. Robert the Elder witnesses the failure of his son's inoculation and sees opportunity. He knows that some inoculations work perfectly. The patient gets a mild sickness, a few pustules near the wound, and recovers. But some go badly, as it did with Robert the Younger. And the patient gets very sick, precisely what inoculation is supposed to prevent. Robert Sr. thinks over the many inoculation methods. Deep cuts through the entire thickness of the skin, shallow cuts that barely draw blood, insertions of thread dipped in smallpox matter, rubbing of a scab from a smallpox-infected patient. He settles on a minimalist approach, an older method that has somehow lost favor. He takes a small surgical knife, dips it in smallpox matter, holds it at a slight angle to the arm of his patient, and sticks it only a millimeter into the skin. 
just deep enough to draw the smallest amount of blood and get smallpox into the body. It works. Robert Sutton Jr. turns his discovery into an enterprise. He opens an inoculation house and advertises his services in the local newspaper. Gentlemen and ladies, he writes, will be prepared, inoculated, boarded, and nursed. Fish and wine are included for only seven guineas. Farmers get tea and mutton with their inoculation for five guineas. And for the benefit of the meaner sort, the poor folks, the price is just three guineas, including a month's boarding for the recovery period. If you can board yourself while recovering, it's just half a guinea for the pleasure of the knife. Word travels fast. Six months later, Robert Sr. opens a second inoculation house, and in another six months, a third. Soon, he's got agents in 16 towns convincing folks to get inoculated. Robert Sutton Sr.'s other son, Daniel, is an even better businessman than his dad. He cuts the time required for inoculation preparation, allows patients to spend time outdoors after the procedure, rather than his father's preferred method of indoor confinement, and he lowers the price. Then, Daniel uses one of the most effective mediums of his day, the pulpit, and hires that fiery Reverend Holton from a local church to help market the great Suttonian system. Which brings us back to that passionate sermon in October 1766, held in Daniel Sutton's private chapel. This sickness as caused by inoculation is not unto death. The ravages of the smallpox, its spreading infection and fatality strike with terror. No one is secure, for infection rides on the wings of the wind, and the air is incorporated with malignant vapor. The danger, the fatality of the smallpox, when received by natural infection, clearly evinces the efficacy and safety of inoculation. What does inoculation mean more than self-preservation? The fire and brimstone delivery works. On the back of the preacher's words, the Suttons become the standard bearers for inoculation. They franchise the Suttonian system. Anyone who pays 100 pounds can inoculate under their name. Their services spread around England and as far as France, Canada, and the American colonies. The method works. Very few of the thousands of people inoculated die, compared to the 30% of smallpox patients who end up in the grave. It's also so easy that anyone can do it. You don't need to be a doctor, even by the standards of doctors back in the 18th century. All you need is a knife, smallpox matter from an infected patient, and an arm to jab it into. The Suttons are not the first inoculators, far from it. But they may be the first to turn it into big business, to draw mass competition for arms to inject. The Suttonian system of inoculation becomes so popular that copycats are inevitable. Inoculators selling the Sutton name and method without sharing the profit. One of their rivals is a doctor named Thomas Dimsdale, who learns of the Suttonian method of inoculation, sees that it works better than his own method, and embraces it himself, albeit without paying a fee to the Suttons. Dimsdale is older than the upstart Daniel Sutton. His upper-crust family has owned land in Essex for centuries. He's got a reputation as an inoculator and physician, 
He even writes a book on his co-opted inoculation method. The book spreads his reputation throughout Europe, landing him in the court of Russian Empress Catherine the Great. Dimsdale earns fame and fortune on the back of the country-bred Sutton family, whose contributions are all but forgotten by the end of the century. He's named a baron of the Russian Empire and is spoken about all over London. The wealthy want to be inoculated using the Suttonian method, but Dimsdale offers the comfort of being a peer of his upper-class patients. Two businesses selling the same life-saving inoculation, Dimsdale's and the Sutton's. With many other inoculators on their tails, a battle to jab the most arms, make the most money, and protect the most lives. It sounds familiar. What inestimable advantages do the public reap from inoculation? Tis most certainly a happy discovery, a blessing of the most weighty concern to this kingdom, whose strength, happiness, and fecundity consist principally in the number of its inhabitants. The promoting of the practice of inoculation is, therefore, consistent with our best policy, and should be encouraged as much as possible. All, all are saved by inoculation, but thousands through neglect of it are every year cut off in the prime of youth and manhood. Let any man seriously reflect what an immense loss this must naturally be to the nation. Despite the aristocratic competition, the Suttons become rich. In 1765 alone, Daniel Sutton inoculates more than 4,000 people and earns the equivalent of more than a million dollars today. A couple years later, the Suttons inoculate 55,000 people. They travel the English countryside, inoculating entire towns. It was explosive. There were villages all over the country that adopted the Suttonian system. By 1767, he had 50 partners. Somebody in Virginia, there was somebody else in Canada. They were scattered all over the country. And they advertised themselves as uh, practicing the Suttonian method. That's Arthur Boylston, an American pathologist. He went to Harvard Med School in the 60s and then came to the UK for what was supposed to be a three-year grant period back in 1972. And I married my boss's secretary, and I'm still here. For a few decades, he was a professor in London and Leeds. Now he's mostly retired, though he's a senior teaching fellow in the Department of Pathology at Oxford University. And I'm a governor of the Oxford University Hospitals. The rest of the time, I put her in the garden. (laughs) So you have become British. Okay. Very. (laughs) It's been a long time. 25 years ago, Arthur Boylston fell down an inoculation rabbit hole, and he began scouring archives for records of the first inoculators, not just in North America, but also in England. Once I discovered what inoculation was, I wanted to see how it had developed, because it had been almost completely forgotten, even in the history of medicine. He ended up writing a book about inoculation called Defying Providence. Boylston's research helped resurface the story of the Suttons as inoculation pioneers, and he became convinced that in the story of vaccines and of the history of the United States, the inoculators have been overlooked. The more I looked into inoculation, the more interesting it got. It's the reason the United States exists. It's the reason Canada isn't part of the United States. We'll get into those claims in later episodes. 
And then ultimately, the most interesting thing I think for most people is finding how Jenner really learned about cowpox. Boylston is talking about Edward Jenner, a doctor living in Gloucestershire, England, at the same time as the Suttons. Here's his story. As a 13-year-old boy and already an apprentice to a country doctor, Jenner met a milkmaid with a lovely, unscarred complexion. She told him she would never get smallpox because she had had cowpox. Apparently, it was common country knowledge that having the latter meant protection from the former. Later, Jenner studies under a surgeon named John Hunter, whose catchphrase is, Why think? Do the experiment. Jenner listens. When he becomes a doctor himself, the story of the beautiful milkmaid returns to Jenner. He does the experiment by exposing people to a small amount of cowpox and seeing if they develop immunity to smallpox. They do. That's the myth behind the invention of the world's first vaccine and the origin of the word. The Latin word for cow is vacca, and the Latin word for cowpox is vaccania. Jenner called his process vaccination. He would become known as the father of immunology, and Jenner is undoubtedly one of the most important scientists of any time. There's just one problem with this wholesome origin story. But it's not true. It was made up. Okay, here's what really happened with Jenner. As the Suttons expanded the reach of their inoculation business, one of the many partners they took on was John Fuster, a doctor who opened an inoculation house in the town of Buckover. In Buckover, Fuster found that some patients who came in failed to get inoculated. That is, these unsuccessful patients showed no smallpox symptoms whatsoever, a sign that the inoculation hadn't taken. They wouldn't get sick at all and would have no pustules show on their skin near the site of the jab. One farmer came in several times for inoculation and it failed every time. The farmer had never had smallpox, but he told Fuster he had suffered a similar disease he called cowpox, which he literally caught from his cows. The cowpox had given him temporary immunity to smallpox. Fuster told this story of the farmer during a meeting of his local medical society in 1768. The society met at an inn called The Ship. At that time, Edward Jenner was only 19 and an apprentice to a surgeon, who happened to be a member of the very same medical society. Boylston believes the true origin of vaccination begins there, at the inn. That Jenner learned of cowpox's power against smallpox via Fuster, not the milkmaid. And that means the work of the Suttons led directly to the first vaccine. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Without the inoculators, which led to the discovery of vaccines, Nicola Pascarelli might not be getting her phase one shot in April 2020. I managed to make it through, and it was it was a very smooth process. And I remember afterwards, you know, they, they wanted me to stay to observe me for a while after the vaccine. Um, and, you know, it was still just like getting used to the whole new change in the world. Four weeks after the first shot, Nicola gets the second. She has some minor side effects, but nothing too bad. She hears the results of the Moderna phase one trial, just like everyone else, on the news. Yeah, so the funny thing is, is my friend Jess, who got me involved in the study in the first place, she is much more of an early riser than I am. So I woke up one morning to like, oh my gosh, you know, the study has been published in a scientific journal and like, look at the result. It's an incredible success. All of the participants show immune responses from the vaccines and no big safety concerns are identified. I feel a lot of responsibility for my participation in it. And so, you know, to be able to read about the Moderna study in these, you know, huge newspapers, the Wall Street Journal and, you know, stuff like that, you know, and be like, that's me. Like, that's me in there. Like, that was really exciting. And though efficacy isn't the focus of this trial, the results on that front are also very promising. But maybe most promising of all for Nicola, she doesn't pass out. Nicola got her first shot in April 2020, 
just over three months after the genetic sequence of coronavirus was posted online. On the next episode of Longshot, we'll hear from a guy who spent 26 years creating a single vaccine. And we'll speak with a woman who has a vaccine made from her own cells. But before we finish this episode, let's go back to the Sutton's hired preacher, their ordained megaphone. His sermon, 250 years ago, could be describing today. The danger, on one hand, is manifestly great. The extreme safety, on the other, is experimentally proved and universally known. There, death triumphantly walks the streets, seeking whom he may devour. Here, he is banished from our habitations and deprived of all power to approach and hurt us. Let us not meanly and cowardly submit to death when we have disarmed him of his sting and obtained this victory over the grave. This is the means. This is the way for our escape. Reason directs us to it. Experience proves the utility and safety. Men, by the light of providence, I'll presume to say, have discovered inoculation and brought it to its greatest perfection. So great, indeed, as to repel and subdue every dangerous symptom, and to have gained the most complete victory over this dreadful enemy of life, so that we may exclaim in the language of Scripture, we triumph over death. This sickness, as caused by inoculation, is not unto death. This sickness is not unto death. Today's episode was produced, written, and narrated by me, Sean Raviv. My co-producer is Gabby Watts. Judah Andrews is our fiery British preacher. Executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, and L.C. Crowley. Special thanks to Noel Brown at iHeartRadio, Nadine Ruffiel and Mary Bauer at the Hope Clinic, Virginia and Joe Pascarelli, and Doris Green. Longshot was scored by Jason Shannon. The score was mixed by Vic Stafford. Sound design and audio mix by Harper Harris with Tune Welders. School of Humans. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. 
I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how three 20-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.